This podcast contains audio extracted from the Harry Potter Theory Extra YouTube channel. Hey everyone, welcome to another installment of Harry Potter Theory. Today we'll be discussing how it is that ones in the wizarding world of Harry Potter are quasi-sentient, aka somewhat alive. Although technically inanimate objects, the ones of witches and wizards in Harry Potter are often thought of as having sentient capabilities, meaning that they are able to consciously observe, react, and emote in certain situations. Of course, I'm not suggesting that ones are capable of complex thoughts or even the ability to think in the same way as other magical sentient items like the Sorting Hat at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. What I am saying, however, is that ones are not simply sticks made of wood that people wave about in order to produce magic. Quite the contrary. Instead, those who have dedicated their lives to understanding the magical capabilities of ones, such as famed British wand maker Mr. Garrick Ollivander, have found that when ones are made with high-quality materials, they have the ability to actually learn, teach, and even make choices similar to human beings. But how exactly are these pieces of wood able to do this? Well, according to Mr. Ollivander, while the full capabilities of a wand should only be evaluated when considering it as a whole, including the materials it's made of, its length, and its flexibility, it's the wood that Ollivander believes most lends a wand its human-like sentience. Indeed, within his extensive notes on wands, Ollivander even wrote the following about wand wood and the importance of where a maker sources their materials from. Every single wand is unique and will depend for its character on the particular tree and magical creature from which it derives its materials. Moreover, each wand, from the moment it finds its ideal owner, will begin to learn from and teach its human partner. Only a minority of trees can produce wand-quality wood, just as a minority of humans can produce magic. It takes years of experience to tell which ones have the gift, although the job is made easier if bow truckles are found nesting in the leaves, as they never inhabit mundane trees. And while Ollivander explains that mundane trees are unable to produce wands with magical capabilities, there is a surprisingly long list of the type of trees that can create high-quality wands. In fact, there are almost 40 varieties in particular that Ollivander has found to produce magical wood. They are acacia, alder, apple, ash, aspen, beech, blackthorn, black walnut, cedar, cherry, chestnut, cypress, dogwood, ebony, elder, elm, English oak, fir, hawthorn, hazel, holly, hornbeam, larch, laurel, maple, pear, pine, poplar, red oak, redwood, rowan, silver lime, spruce, sycamore, vine, walnut, willow, and yew. Now, although the wood of a wand seems to be the most sentient part of it, the core also plays a part in the almost human-like capabilities of these magical instruments. And while other lesser-known wand makers have produced wands using a variety of different cores, the results have been nowhere near as great as the higher-caliber ones made by wand makers like Mr. Ollivander. For this reason, it's not all that surprising that Ollivander believes that there are only three types of cores that should be used if one wishes to produce a wand of respectable quality. These three materials are unicorn hair, dragon heartstring, and phoenix feathers. In reference to a cause impact on a wand's human-like capabilities, it would seem that these three materials often showcase certain preferences on the type of magic they perform. For example, unicorn hair is said to be the most difficult to turn to the dark arts, according to Ollivander, with dragon heartstring being the easiest. Unicorn cores are also the most loyal to their owners, especially their first partner, 
and these cores even have the ability to die if they succumb to depression. Dragon cores, on the other hand, typically learn the fastest and are often viewed as the most temperamental, while phoenix feathers have been known to act of their own accord, believing they have the right to take initiative. It therefore makes sense that phoenix cores are usually the pickiest of the three when it comes to choosing an owner. In terms of a wand's flexibility, Ollivander has suggested that a more rigid wand will be less likely to adapt. The length of a wand, on the other hand, seems to have little to do with its sentience and more to do with how it pairs with a witch or wizard. Ollivander has recorded in his notes the following. Most wands will be in the range of between 9 and 14 inches. While I have sold extremely short ones, 8 inches and under, and very long ones, over 15 inches, these are exceptionally rare. Wand flexibility or rigidity denotes the degree of adaptability and willingness to change possessed by the wand and owner pair. And so, it would seem that it's the combination of a wand's make and materials that lend it its quasi-sentient capabilities, making each wand unique in its own way, just like the witches and wizards that they pair themselves with. Of course, wands are not the only magical objects in Harry Potter that can think and act as though they were alive. As I've already briefly mentioned, the sorting hat used in a sorting ceremony at Hogwarts has the ability to look into a student's head and decipher which schoolhouse, Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, or Slytherin, will be the best fit for them. It also has the ability to make up a new song about the history and reasoning behind the sorting ceremony each and every year. We even witness it having a short conversation with Harry while it's determining which house to place him in during his sorting ceremony. Within Hogwarts Castle, there are also the somewhat sentient items that are responsible for determining who will be admitted into the famous Wizarding School, the Quill of Acceptance and the Book of Admittance. Together, these items decide who will receive their Letter of Acceptance each school year, with the book being a lot more difficult to convince than the Quill. And then, who could forget the many magical portraits lining the walls of the castle? These paintings are meant to represent the real people featured in the portraits. However, some representations are more lifelike than others. For example, the headmaster portraits have far greater abilities to impersonate their subjects than the ones hanging elsewhere in the castle, as these headmaster paintings typically spend substantially more time with their real-life counterparts than the rest. As a result, the portraits are able to learn how to more accurately represent that witch or wizard. As it is tradition for important witches and wizards to sit for portraits while still alive so that they may continue to pass down their knowledge after death, paintings were completed well before most head teachers passed on. Their portraits were privately kept, hidden away, so that they would only interact with their living counterparts. Subjects would then visit their paintings as often as possible, imparting memories and wisdom onto them, basically teaching the paintings how to be them. And while I'm sure I could go on and on about different sentient objects at Hogwarts and beyond, I think I'll end it there for today, which means we've come to the end of another video. What did you think? Did you know where ones got their quasi-sentient abilities from? What are your favorite sentient objects in Harry Potter? Please share your thoughts in the comments below, and as always, if you enjoyed this video, don't forget to like it and subscribe to the channel. Until next time, remember, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live.